0: So I'd like to continue this morning. I want to encourage you, uh, if you're visiting, um, I've been started a series out of the book of James called Dazzling Christianity. I preached one message called Hang On. uh, I know it's tough, but hang in there. And Petri preached a wonderful message out of James chapter 1. And then last week we had uh, Easter, so it was more of an Easter message. But I'm going to pick up again this morning, and this is my second message out of the series called Dazzling Christianity. And I'd like to call this message this morning, The Pathway to Maturity. How many of you want to be mature? I'm not saying that in a funny way. I want to be mature. I'm kind of 47 now. I think it's about time that I was a little bit more mature, don't you? (laughs) And uh, there's a pathway to maturity, and I believe James has some keys for us if we would let God um, speak to us. And so I trust this morning as as I share that he would come and bring revelation to you. If you if you are um, visiting and you'd like to catch up with the messages, you can go online to our podcast or on uh, Xavier, which is a video uh, facility, and you can catch up on the messages. Uh, if you've been away on holiday, I encourage you to do the same thing. So let's go to James chapter one. We're going to read the first four verses again. James, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some versions say steadfastness, which is really patience. And let patience have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Well, then we could dwell on this for a year. (laughs) We really could. And uh, I've called this dazzling Christianity not not because of any kind of uh, sense of showing off, like dazzling Christians. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, Jesus said, we are the light of the world. I'm talking about a maturity in Christ that is so bright that it dazzles people. And that's what I mean when I say dazzling Christianity. And I want to say this little phrase that we're looking at is... is, is Absolutely amazing, because to live in a place of joy when you're in a place of difficulty or trial is a supernatural thing. It is dazzling. For people to live with an overriding sense of joy in their hearts and in their lives when they're in the midst of a tough time is a supernatural thing. And it is dazzling, and it is amazing. And so, just to remind you, James wrote this book to scattered people. He wrote uh, this to the early church that had been scattered through persecution all over the Mediterranean basin. The people were discouraged. Things hadn't worked out like they thought they would. There was a big revival to start with in the early church, and then persecution came, and they were scattered. And so they're discouraged. They're scattered all over the place. And they've become backslidden. And how do we know that? Because we read a little bit further, and he challenges them on a number of things. He says, you need to control your tongue. The way you speak shows something about your heart. And he says, those that can't control their tongues are not really in a good place with God. That's what he's trying to say. And he says, if you discriminate against the poor... You're not in a good place with God, and He's calling them back. He's calling them back, a backslidden people. They are all respectable backsliders. They're respectable in every way, but they are backslidden. Their hearts are far from God, and He calls them back. He's calling them back, and that's really what the Book of James is against uh, is about. And He says an amazing, amazing thing. He starts. I mean, you think He would put His arm around them and comfort them, and say, "Come on, guys, let me lift your eyes." He starts and he says, count it all joy when you face difficult times. (laughs) That's his comfort. And so it must be real comfort if he starts in that place. It's not by accident he starts in that place. And last time I, I said that God wants to develop in us an unconscious attitude of our hearts that we start responding from that place without even knowing that we are responding from that place. There's a habit in our lives of patience. And I said, God, God uh, allows things in our lives that are trials for us. And I said, they're not only a test of grace, but they are means of grace in our lives. They are means for us to find grace for our lives. And not only does the book of James say that, but if you go to Peter, 1 Peter 1 verse 6, it says exactly the same thing. Peter and, John, Peter and James agree with each other. And uh, I want to read that to you this morning. It says this, that verse in 1 Peter 1 verse 6. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? So Peter says the same things. And this verse um, in James that we're looking at, where he says that you know, there's a very strong word used there. It's a Greek word, ginos I always wish Maria was here to make sure that my pronunciation was right. Contest. And it means, it means two things. It means you know by revelation and you know by experience. Both of them confirm each other. There's a revelation by the Spirit that happens. And you know by the result of your life and how you the experience that you have, you know that tests are good for you. That's what James is saying. So that's, uh, it's very strongly put in the original Greek. And... Um, That's what Paul says in Acts as well, in Acts 14, 22. He says, we enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation, through much hardship, he says. Some translations say that. And I I really want to encourage you this morning, and I'm doing my best to do that, because this is an uncomfortable truth that all of us as Christians need to come to terms with. How many of you would say you would love to see revival in your lifetime? Okay. Okay. I want to see revival in my lifetime. I want to see a little revival in this church. I want to see people's lives transformed. I'm sure you do. I want to see this place packed out by people who are going to get saved into the kingdom. That's what I'm trusting for this year. And uh, not that I haven't trusted for it before, but in a new way. I'm saying, God, I'm trusting for that, for you, uh, for this church. You know, it would be great. It would be wonderful if all we needed to do uh, to see revival come was to get together every day and pray. And uh, prayer is good. Prayer is a wonderful thing. If we could somehow manufacture revival, just do a number of things and revival would come. Well, history shows us, church history shows us, that's not how revival ever happens. Revival happens, there's a sovereign move of God and people don't even know why it happens. And then in the midst of revival, people have developed these techniques and said, well, if you just do this and you just do that, revival will come. I don't, I don't think so. I think, I think church history shows when people are hungry, consistently hungry, when people are consistently have a heart after God, where people consistently are determined that the sanctifying work of Christ would transform them from the inside out, that is contagious. And you know what we call that when a whole bunch of people start getting that together? We call that revival. I'm telling you now, we don't have to go anywhere else in the world to experience revival right here in this congregation. The Holy Spirit can do it. But what is it going to take? It's going to take you and I learning to respond in difficult times with a supernatural grace in our lives. That's what James says. (laughs) We don't want the pain sometimes, do we? What tries our faith? I want to ask you that question this morning. What tries our faith? Well, I've been thinking about that quite a lot. What tries our faith? I think sudden disappointments try our faith. Sudden disappointments. When you are not expecting something to go wrong, and it does go wrong, then automatically you have a test of faith that you weren't looking for, and there it is. And you have to contend with these things in your life and in my life. And you know what James says? He says, it's not good that we get tried in the same area over and over and over and over again, because that means we're not learning the lesson that God has for us. We're not growing in grace. But if we've been... I think trials are part of life. Testing's are part of life. And as we pass one test, there's another test that God has for us. And this is a compliment to Christians, that God is taking us on this journey, making us more and more like Jesus, transforming us from the inside out, and He used the circumstances of our life to do that. And so I want to say, for me, what God has been saying to me, is what is most important at this time is your reaction in the test shows that there's a spiritual reaction in your life, or it doesn't. And I don't want to react in the same way all the time. Because if I'm reacting in the same way all the time, it means I'm not hearing the voice of God. I'm not listening. The Spirit is not transforming me. And if I start to respond differently because God is doing something in my heart, then I'm beginning to grow in grace. And that's what I want. I'm sure that's what you want as well. And that's what James is talking about when he says we have to have a patient frame of mind. And um, I was just thinking that he has a little defini- definition of patience for you. Patience is the ability to endure hardship without grumbling. <laughs> without grumbling. When I think of the journey of the Israelites, you know what stands out over and over again when you read after they came out of, uh, 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 they came out of Egypt and they... They, they're moving into the promised land. They're in the desert. What does it say over and over and over again? They grumbled. They grumbled. They complained. They get released from Egypt. The first thing they complain about is that there's no meat. And so God gives them meat quail, manna. And there's this, this overriding theme that you see over and over again that they are consistent grumblers. And that's what God is trying to get out of their hearts, that they wouldn't grumble when things are difficult. And I admire. The, I I think that is a virtue that is absolutely admirable in every way. I'm not, for a moment, saying I have it in my life yet, <laughs> and I don't think we get it by simply praying for it either. <laughs> That's the hard part. We don't just get it by praying. I believe more and more that patience in our lives comes as we start to react correctly to sudden disappointments. Those disappointments throw us into a place where at first we we think this is beyond my ability to cope. I cannot cope with this. And patience somehow brings us to a crossroads all the time. It brings us to a crossroads. It's a a virtue that brings us to a crossroads because we have to exercise it. And it shows, in a a sense, it's a marker for us and shows us how far we've come in the test already. It shows us where we've come and how we react in the moment will determine... At the crossroads, what direction we go off at. So patience always brings us to a crossroads in our lives. And I I was saying this to um, Kervis this week. For me, patience is an amazing thing because it's a compliment to you because it shows that you've already come so far in your journey of faith. Because that's what Peter says, and we're going to have a look at, at Peter now. Because the goal of the Christian life is a very simple one is simply to bring us into perfect love. The goal of the Christian life is love, to love perfectly. That is the supreme goal of the Christian life. We asked Michael, when he was with us, Michael Eaton, what is the what, what is the sign of a healthy church? Uh, you, could, you could have many answers to that. You could say a big church, you could say a growing church, you could say a church with great worship, you could say church that, love, that uh, shows the evidence of the Holy Spirit, all the fruits of the Spirit, he said a very simple thing. He said healthy church is a church that loves each other. That's it. Just loves each other. No backbiting, no fighting, no this, no that, no sparring with each other theologically. Just a church that loves each other. <laughs> Perfect love is the goal of the Christian life. And why do I say that? Well, if you turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, if we read verse 3, it says this. Now, I'm saying to you this morning that if you're being asked to develop patience in your life, if you feel like God is doing something in you to force you into a place where you have to be patient, you can do nothing else. It's a compliment to you because it shows you've already come... A ways in your walk with Christ. And um, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says this. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Isn't that beautiful? It's not our trying heart. It's His divine power has given all that we need for life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him, that is Jesus, who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption that is in the world because of sin. For this reason... In the light of this great salvation, remember, that's the language of the gospel. That's the warm logic of the gospel. It's always in the light of Christ, always in the light of the cross, always in the light of what Jesus has done, that we can do anything. And so he says, because of this great salvation, because of Jesus, that you can know him, that you can be partakers in the divine nature together with him, you have these great and exceeding promises in Christ because of this, for this reason. This is what we we give ourselves to make every effort, some translations say add to, to add to your faith virtue, and to your virtue knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control, and self-control with patience, and patience with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And we end up with love. That is the goal. Love is the goal. It's the goal of all things, to love perfectly, to love us like Christ has loved. For Christ so loved the world that He gave His Son. That's what He wants from us as the church. My question to you this morning is a very simple one. Where is patience in that list? It is right in the middle. It brings you to the crossroads. Patience. It's right in the middle. The scripture after it mentions patience, it says, add to your patience godliness. And godliness, brotherly affection, and brotherly affection, love. There are no short cuts in the gospel life, in your walk with Jesus. Not for you, not for me, not for anybody. The deal is this: we can't add We can't come into perfect love until we have known brotherly affection. If you go backwards. We can't know what brotherly affection is until we know what godliness is. And the thing that brings us to the crossroads right in the middle is patience. And patience comes when we learn to pass the test of all tests. And the, the test of all tests is the testing of our faith. The trial of our faith. And Peter and John... Sorry, Peter and James, I always say John, they agree on this. If you read Peter and read James, that how we handle the trial, how we handle the difficult time will determine the result of where we end up will also develop in us, either develop in us the patient habit that James is speaking about, and that that patient habit becomes our frame of mind. It becomes our un- unconscious attitude of our heart. It's something that just flows out of it. Now, I'm preaching this in faith this morning because I do not exhibit this much in my life. <laughs> I am impatient in many ways. Depends how you're wired, aren't you? If you like a person who's... um. Uh, and there's some guys that are like me, they're, they're, you, you measure things, you like goals, you like to have projects, I, I'm like that, that's how I work, that's how I'm wired, I want to see some things happen. The downside of that is when you don't see the things happen as quickly as you want, then you get impatient. <laughs> so you know what God is forming in me right now? Patience. <laughs> and I've been talking about this a lot in our private conversation. Patience, patience, patience. You want to see people saved. You want to see people revitalized. You want to see the gospel come in people. Hey, you preach your heart out. It's like nothing seems to happen. You're going, God, what is wrong? Your gospel is true. <laughs> your, God is, your gospel is true. And maybe God is just teaching me some patience. That his gospel works in people's lives at different rates for different people. What does the scripture say? It says, soil of the heart, some people's Hearts are hard. Some are soft. Some are receptive. Some are consumed with this world and the career and all this kind of stuff. And Jesus says that's what you should expect as a preacher of the gospel. All you do is you sow the seed. You sow the seed. You carry on sowing the seed. Sowing the seed. And in his time, he makes everything beautiful. Yes, amen. I'm so relieved. What is patience? Isaiah, you know, different people in the Bible define it different ways, but they're all saying the same thing. Isaiah, Isaiah 26.3, he uses this phrase. He says, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is set on you, because he trusts in you. Perfect peace. What about Paul in Philippians 4.7? And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. It's the same thing. They're talking about the same thing. That's a patient frame of mind. That's a patient heart. That's a settled heart. I think it was Brother Lawrence, the famous, uh, some of you might have heard of him. He said, I think he used this phrase, that patience is practicing the presence of God. That's amazing. Putting it like that. Patience is practicing the presence of God. So when I think about it, I think, a patient frame of mind, a patient heart, is a is a heart or a mind that doesn't know panic. It's not it's not wired to panic. It's not wired to hurry. <laughs> That's always my problem to hurry. It's not it's not wired for revenge. It's not wired for hostility. It's not wired for resentment. A patient frame of mind, a patient heart, a mind and a heart that is at rest and is at perfect peace is an undisturbed mind. It's an undisturbed heart that trusts and knows that our Father in heaven is good and kind and generous in every way to us, and that is His heart towards us. He's always smiling upon us. He always looks upon us with joy in His heart. He's always singing over us, always. That's His heart towards us, and we are so convinced of that, that whatever happens in our lives... We respond to it with joy because we know ultimately that God works all things together for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Well, my question is to you this morning is the same as that I asked myself this week as I was making these notes. Do you have that? <laughs> Do you have that kind of patience? Do you have that kind of frame of mind? Is your heart settled in you? Maybe you might say, Ant, that's completely foreign. I don't know what you're talking about. It seems beyond my ability. You might say, that sounds wonderful, but I don't know if I'll ever ever have that. You might say, maybe I need a greater revelation of God to get that kind of patience. Maybe you might feel like you need to pray and read more and seek God. and Now, all those things are good. All those, those things are helpful and true. But you know what James says? Now, I come back to where I started. James says, that kind of patience... It comes in your life by reacting well to trials. I wish it was another way, (laughs) but it ain't. That's what the Bible says. It says it comes in you in the way that you react to trials. And in fact, he carries on and he uses this phrase, which I found amazing let patience have her perfect work. I was thinking about what that means. Patience. Let patience have its perfect work in you. Let patience have its perfect work in me. And I think there are three things we can just take out of that phrase. For patience to have its perfect work in your life means you don't try and end the trial prematurely. You don't panic and try and end the trial prematurely. Why did I say that? I want to remind you what I said two weeks ago. Every trial in our life comes through, in, through, into our lives through the throne of grace, under the sovereign hand of God. Every trial. It comes by His permission. Remember, I used that um, little Greek word peripipto. <laughs> peripipto? Which, which means you fall into trials. You don't go looking for trials. You fall into trials. Just like says uh, the Good Samaritan story that the man on the road, he fell amongst thieves. He wasn't looking for for them to rob him. He was just living his life and suddenly, poof, these robbers f- jumped on him. He had nothing to do with it. And that's how the, Bi- the Bible speaks about trials. That's the biblical teaching about trials. You don't go looking for trials. They have f- God allows them by a sovereign hand, it's just you fall into them. And then the important thing is how you respond to them. And I believe God is saying to me, and I believe God is saying to you that our job is not to try and resolve our trial, it's not to try and get out of our trial, it's not to, to try and prematurely bring an end to it. Our job is simply to respond with dignity and with honor in the trial. And with joy in our hearts. And with faith. That's all God is asking us to do. Because I believe God is sovereign. And the same God that allowed that trial in your life will sovereignly in His time, when all things are beautiful, He will bring an end to it like that. He will. (laughs) He will. So that's the first conclusion we can draw from that little thing of perfect work. Don't try and prematurely end the trial, whatever it is in your life. Ask God for faith. Ask God for grace. Ask God for dignity. Secondly, for patience to have a perfect work means that the trial, whatever it is, doesn't come without a purpose. I don't believe God is uh, responds to us in any way out of whims, just allowing stuff to happen in our lives willy nilly. He doesn't. He doesn't. We are not existentialists. Existentialists are people who believe that there's no meaning or purpose to life. That is not a Christian worldview. Christianity believes that everything has a purpose under the sovereign hand of God. Everything has design under the sovereign hand of God. And... James is trying to encourage you and I not to just sweep aside the trials and pretend they're not there or just try and get out of them. He's saying in the, in, the, in the dealing of that, as you allow God to show you and you rest in Him and you respond in Him, there's a supernatural thing that God does to give you joy in that trial that it, beca- it, it becomes a blessing in your life. Isn't that an amazing thing? That what is in a trial for you becomes a blessing in the end. Can I I pick on a subject that is quite common, unfortunately? What about slander? What about when someone says something about you that you know is completely untrue and you just get so mad? You think, how could they say that? It's untrue. What do most of us want to do? We want to get on the phone immediately and just let all our mates know that it's not true. Why? Because we're proud, isn't that right? We're proud. And we want to defend ourselves. You know what I think God is saying? Even in things like slander. What's more important? Your pride? Or your walk with him? What do I mean by that? Well, if we trust God to vindicate us. Either now on earth. Or sometime in heaven. Even if the vindication only comes in heaven. Then we have and the opportunity to grow in our lives, and we will experience his vindication, which is perfect, and we will also enjoy growth in our own lives, in our walk with Jesus. If we try and do it ourselves, all we end up with is our own vindication, and that's not worth much at all. I think we we want be able to calculate how much we can grow and how much we can grow in maturity if we will just let the sovereign hand of God, if we will just yield to the sovereign hand of God in our lives. And trust Him in all things, good, bad, indifferent. We trust Him that He will vindicate us in His time. Amen? Thirdly, for patience to have a perfect work means this, that patience as a virtue in itself is a living thing that transforms people. While we wait for God, while we uh, trust for God to break through and power in our lives, when we're going through difficult times, we can worship. Now I am a musician and I love to worship, and I love it when people worship because you know what worship does. When you worship God, your whole perspective changes you suddenly see things completely differently. When you are lost in His presence, when you are just pouring out your heart to Him and loving Him with all of your heart, everything changes. When you have a revelation of grace, everything changes. And I mean everything. How you see yourself, how you see others, how you see your enemies, it changes when you have a revelation of grace. What did R.T. say to us? Bless your enemies is what Jesus said. And what does Jesus mean? He really means bless your enemies. Those who are seeking to do you harm, those who want to kill you, if the grace of God has transformed you, you can genuinely speak blessing over them and say, I bless you. That is waiting for the vindication of God. That's a powerful thing. When we worship things that are fuzzy, they suddenly become clear. We become more objective about ourselves. We become more objective about God. We become more objective about the things around us. There's a new sense of perspective. And we, be, you know what I found? That you suddenly enjoy the simple things of life. When your heart is a heart of worship, man just sitting in the sun on a spring day in your garden with the beautiful plants growing and the little robins We've got a couple of robins that are nesting right in our little, in our hedge, and they come and sit right close to us. And the sun's going down, and your family is there, and you're enjoying a glass of orange juice. <laughs> man, life is good. huh? Life is so good! And yet we have all these worries. And I see Annalise smiling there, because I think, man, Martin, you are, you, are, you are the man, I tell you what. To take your wife away to to Tuscany without, without her even knowing. I think that is brilliant. We've got to take some lessons for you. How did you keep it a secret? <laughs> yeah, you're not telling me. Well, else it's no longer a secret. So guys, you've got to get some tips from Martin on how to keep it a secret because he did it very well. Okay, I'm nearly finished. So I think one of the best things we can do when we're going through difficult times is just to start praying for other people. Not just being consumed by their own needs. We can learn so much when we are praying for others, for we're waiting for that work of patience to fully emerge in our lives. And ultimately, the scripture says, Matthew 10, says, ultimately the perfect work of patience at the end is the redemption that we experience. The fullness of the redemption that we experience when Jesus comes back. One day, all of this will be gone. <laughs> all the pain all the suffering in the world will be gone. Jesus will come back. And like that, our lives will be transformed. And so I believe it's the same with trials. That they start, but suddenly they end, and God brings a conclusion. And I want to just ask you this morning, will you be able to say after your difficult time is over, will your response just be, I'm so glad that's over? (laughs) Like just the relief of it? Or will there be a sense that you know you've endured it with dignity and with grace? Because if the trial ends and we we are found out to be those that have manipulated to try and bring it to a a, a premature end, or we've defended ourselves, or we've looked for the approval of others in the trial, I I think we will blush when we see that God, in the midst of the trial, was working behind our backs for all of those things anyway. He was working for all of those things anyway. I believe genuine joy comes to us when we enjoy when we endure the trial without murmuring without complaining and so I guess my question is a simple one is well how do you want to get your joy and how do I want to get my joy God's way or my way So as I conclude I think there're two kinds of joy real joy superficial joy and often we, we, we um, confuse superficial joy for the kind of joy that James is talking about here. Because I think superficial joy can be expressed in two ways. There's the sheer relief. I think that's quite the superficial joy that he's talking about. Uh, it's, uh, that j- it's not what James is talking about. It's just that sense of sheer relief that the thing's over. Or an artificial joy uh, when we try and manipulate our way out of the trial. And I was thinking, you know, the best example I can think of is Abraham and Sarah. In the Old Testament. What was the promise of God to them? That they would have a child. The problem was the child didn't come. (laughs) That was the problem. What they desired with all their hearts, what God had promised, he took his time in bringing them. And so what do they do? They try and make a plan. They are not patient enough. They don't believe that God is really good, that God is really going to give what. He promised, and so they try and manufacture something to happen. What do they do? They come to this conclusion. Well, ah, Sarah says, "Just take Hagar, your slave girl, which you're allowed to do anyway, and produce an heir with her." Great plan. Born out of impatience. And what happens? Well, they do get an answer. Uh, it's Ishmael, and it's not God's answer. It's their answer. And it messes everything up. And there's so much pain in their lives as a result of that impatience in the trial, not waiting for God's answer, manufacturing their own answer. That's artificial joy, it's not long lasting. I've claimed Romans eight twenty eight a lot in the in the last while in my life because I believe it's a promise that every Christian has. And you know it, I've quoted a read this morning. We know that all things work together for God, for good, for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. Uh, I want to say let's lean on that verse with all of our hearts, but don't manipulate to try and make it happen. You know, if we try and organize the circumstances in our life so we can say, all things that work together for the good, it's not, that's not what God is talking about. That's not the kind of thing that's going to produce real joy in our lives. There's a joy that comes from heaven that is supernatural, and it comes from you being convinced that God's heart towards you is smiling, good, kind, generous in every way. You are so convinced of that, that anything comes into your life is, is filtered through that framework, and you know ultimately it's going to work out for your good because you love Him. Ecclesiastes 3.11, He makes all things beautiful in His time. You know, as I was looking at the thing of Abraham and Sarah, I, I was just reflecting on this. If you go and read the Bible, most tragedies in the Bible are the result of impatience. They really are. They're the result of people taking things into their own hands to try and make the promise of God happen. When we wait for God, when we truly wait for Him, the result of how He works things out is truly beautiful. It's perfect. It's without flaw. And that's what Galatians 4 says, Galatians 4 verse 4, speaking of the incarnation of Jesus, and what does it say? It says this, when the fullness of time came... God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be received and adopted as sons. In the fullness of time. In other words, when all things were beautiful in God's timing, he sent his son. It's a perfect illustration of how God can work if we don't mess it up. (laughs) It's true. It's a perfect illustration of how God unhinderedly brings his purposes into the world, when it's not being interfered with. In the fullness of time, he sent Christ to redeem us so that we might be adopted as sons. And I just want to conclude with this. And uh, I I feel it's very important that we look at this thing of perfection because we we mustn't get confused here. And I think for me, it, it is a big concern for me in terms of the church at the moment. Not this church, but the church. Because... The last thing that James is saying when he uses this phrase is that he's actually talking about what patience will do for us as people. All right, And he uses this phrase, he says, we are perfect in every way. So what does that mean? We must think about what perfection means. Is he talking about sinless perfection or sinless maturity? Now, this is a concern that you must be aware of because there is a heresy that's quite common in the church right now. It's called sinless perfection. And what it teaches is this. It teaches that because Jesus took all of our sins upon himself on the cross, God only sees the imputed righteousness, the, the, if you like, the, the per- perfection of Jesus upon our lives. And therefore, we don't have to ask for, for forgiveness for anything because it's already been dealt with under the cross. Okay? This is called sinless perfection. It is a heresy. It's not true. Why I say that to you is this. It confuses your position in Christ, which is one that you are justified, with your relationship with Jesus. Okay? Can I put it to you like this? I will always be married to Helen. Always. We have a legal contract. Whether I feel married or don't feel married is irrelevant. Helen is my wife. I'm always committed to her. She's committed to me. All right? That's it. My relationship with her and the sweetness of my relationship with her is determined by a number number of things. I want to tell you that if I sin against her and I don't say sorry, we're not going to have a sweet relationship. If she sins against me and she doesn't say sorry, we're not going to have we're not going to have a good relationship. Who we are in Christ is settled once and for all. We are saved. That is our position. My relationship with Jesus, the sweetness, the intimacy of my relationship, the inheritance that I have here on earth and in heaven one day will be determined and is determined by how I live. How can you say that you don't need to ask for forgiveness for sins? It's illogical in one sense and it's completely untrue. Of course you do. Why? Because... You want a relationship with Jesus. We're not just interested in our position, our legal position. We want to enjoy intimacy with Him. We want to enjoy a sweet romance with Him. It's by the Spirit. Of course you have to say sorry. Why did Jesus say? Why did He teach His disciples? And He said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. What did He say about forgiveness? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sinned against us. Are you telling me that after the Holy Spirit came everything that Jesus said is irrelevant? It's ridiculous. It's just not true. (laughs) Of course we have to ask for forgiveness. And maybe this is a sermon for another day. But anyway, I just want to say to you, 1 John 1 verse 8 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Don't confuse your position in Jesus with your relationship with Him. Okay? So what does James mean about perfection then? He says, well, I, I believe this, and I'll finish with this. I really am finishing, right? <laughs> but I'm excited to preach this morning, and that's always a danger when the preacher is excited, okay? <laughs> what does James mean by per- perfection then? What does he mean by, when he uses the word perfection? I believe perfection couple of things. One, he's talking primarily about a godly contentment. A godly contentment. A a man or woman of God who is so settled in the relationship with God that they don't crave the things of the world anymore. Alright? To quote John again, John also says in John 1 verse 8, love not the world or the things of this world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so he carries on, and he gives three illustrations. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What do those things mean? Well, the lust of the flesh, it means that we're not to sin outwardly. That, I think that's quite obvious. We can talk about that some more. The lust of the eyes, what does that mean? It means we're, not to, we're, to, we're to avoid temptation as much as we can. And I believe when we learn to avoid, to avoid temptation, we are beginning to be disciples of Jesus. We are. We're starting to be, become disciples of Jesus, and we're starting to, to grow as Jesus would have us grow. And thirdly, I think this is the most subtle one, the pride of life, the highest level of worldliness, the pride of life. I can put it simply like this. Our egos need to serve the honor of God. <laughs> our egos, that's the hardest one, the hardest one. We can sometimes, it's easy to avoid with sin, uh, to deal with sin and avoid temptation in a manner. But the thing of our egos, putting ourselves primarily, being concerned more what people think than what God thinks, for me, I think that is a high level of worldliness. When we are consumed always with what people think rather than what God thinks, that's worldliness. And God God is encouraging us all to leave that behind. The second thing I want to say when he uses this thing of perfection is that I believe James is saying, like Jesus is saying, that it's possible for every Christian to live with a forgiving spirit. That's what it means to be perfect. To live with the forgiving spirit. Jesus said in my, Matthew five forty eight, Be perfect even as my Father in heaven is perfect. And that's why he taught us to pray and said, Forgive us our sins as we forgive others. I want to ask you this simple question that challenged me as I thought about it this week. How many times do I make myself out to be a liar when I actually pray that prayer and yet I have not forgiven myself? It's true, isn't it? But I believe that Jesus knew it was possible for us to have a spirit of forgiveness that characterized our lives, just like God's spirit. So do we only forgive those that forgive us? Do we only forgive those that love us? Or do we forgive those that don't like us? My friends, it is a pathway to maturity that God is calling us all to. And it's a maturity that far exceeds worldliness in every way. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Patience is the pathway to maturity. Because as we respond in a patient way, we become exactly who God wants us to be. And we might admire certain people and say, oh, there's one, I can see it's in their lives, I can see it's in their lives. I want to ask you this morning, what kind of power would be released in the church if every single one of us was exactly the person that God intended us to be? What power would be released in the church? That's the kind of godliness that leads to revival. That's the kind of godliness that God wants for all of us. It's the kind of maturity that God has for all of us. I want to encourage you. We have the righteous, imputed righteousness of Christ. He sees us as perfect. Yeah? Let's love each other then. Let's love each other with all of our hearts. Uh, Let's love Jesus with all of our hearts. Let's hate the world. Let's put worldliness aside. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, let's put that aside and let's enjoy this journey with Christ. Let's enjoy this, this walk with him and allow him to transform us from the inside out, allow him to do these things. Up. And I, I am absolutely convinced that as we do that, we will see revival come. We will. What matters most is our reaction to trials, to hard times. And how we respond will determine much of where we are taken forward into by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Let's let's pray this morning. Father, we do thank you for the power of the cross. We do thank you for your amazing grace in our lives. We do bless you and honor you for what you're doing in this community, in the churches in this community. And Father, our prayer is that we would become mature believers, that we would be those that are shown to be faithful when we are in times of trials. I pray, Lord Jesus, that um, as people in this congregation face different things, different challenges in their lives, I pray that you would give us grace and a generous spirit which would enable us to endure things with joy, that we would be those that don't murmur, that don't complain, that simply allow your spirit to transform us, that we might in all things grow up into the head who is Jesus. And so I simply trust you for this this morning, Lord, and I thank you for every single person in this congregation, every single person here this morning, and I pray your blessing. I pray your Holy Spirit's guidance and walk and every good thing that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.